November 24th, 1971. Thanksgiving. In Portland, Oregon, a man buys an airline ticket for a 30-minute flight north to Seattle. He pays in cash, and he books it on Northwest Orient Airlines, flight 305. The plane is a Boeing 727-100 and is about one-third the capacity, so it's bound to be a fairly peaceful flight, the odd prime baby notwithstanding. He's fairly unassuming. In fact, he's almost noticeably inconspicuous. Short, dark hair, black suit, cheap tie, carrying a black attaché case, clearly a businessman on his way home from a trip for the holidays. He orders a bourbon and soda and he waits patiently for the flight to take off. A 30-minute jaunt like this is nothing to worry about. Around 10 to 3 p.m. Pacific time, the flight departs. A little while later, the man calls over a flight attendant, one Florence Schaefer. She walks over to him and he hands her a note. Now, this is in the days where air hostesses, as they were known back then, today we call them flight attendants, were expected to deal with sleazy businessmen It was part of the job. So she assumes it's his phone number and he's trying to be slick. Strange, though, because he doesn't really seem the type. She puts it in her purse without a second thought. But then the man calls her back over with a slightly bemused look on his face. And oh great, she thinks to herself, I'm going to have to hear some sexist schlock. But what he says to her next will stay with her for the rest of her life. Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. Shaper stares at him in disbelief. Slowly she reads the note, written with care and precision in a felt pen. It explains that in the black attaché case is a bomb. When she's done reading, the man instructs her to sit next to him and he opens the case a crack. It's the real deal, at least to her appraisal. Eight red cylinders, four on top of four, attached with red electrical wire to a large battery. The man's not playing around. He gives her his demands. $200,000 in negotiable American currency, verbatim quote there, four parachutes, two primary, two reserve, and for the plane to be refueled without delay when it lands in Seattle. He tells her to go, and Schaefer tells the pilots who get in contact with the ground control. When she gets back to him, he's wearing a pair of black sunglasses. For context, that's about $1.2 million in today's money that he's just demanded. But now the real action begins. The passengers are told they'll be delayed into Seattle due to mechanical difficulties. The president of Northwest Orion authorizes the ransom payment. Letting the passengers and crew die on Thanksgiving over any amount of money would be bad PR, ignoring the obvious moral obligation. For two hours, the plane circles the Puget Sound, giving the ground teams time to organize the ransom money in parachutes and the FBI time to get into position. For all they know, this is a terrorist hijacking. And this is pre-9-11, by a long time. Hijackings did happen, but not normally domestic flights in the Pacific Northwest, and usually for overt political reasons. This is more a modern-day equivalent of a Wild West train robbery. Another flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, notices that the man is constantly pointing out local geography as they fly over it. Wherever he's from, the guy knows the Northwest. Mucklow and Schaefer also notice his demeanor. He's calm, collected, every bit the consummate professional. As we said before, most hijackings of this day have a very take-me-to-Cuba vibe, but this guy might as well be a dealer at a poker table for how he's acting. And as if that wasn't enough, he orders a second Berber and soda, and he pays his tab and offers Mucklow the change as a tip, and even mooted the idea of including meals for the crew at his ransom demands. The man's got panache, whatever else you say about him. When the plane hits tarmac in Seattle, the city holds its breath. The FBI give him 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, that they'd secretly microfilmed, of course. 
but he rejects their military-grade parachutes, instead demanding that they obtain civilian ones off a local flight school. When the plane does touch down, it's at around 20 to 6. The man orders the pilot to taxi to an unlit area of the runway to avoid police snipers. He's done his homework. He orders most of the crew and passengers off, including Schaefer, but the rest are ordered to remain. You can't give up all your hostages if you're hijacking. Around two hours later, the plane is back in the air, fully fueled. And during the refueling, the man explained his plan to the pilots. Fly southeast towards Mexico City at the slowest possible speed without stalling the plane. No higher than 10,000 feet in altitude, no faster than 100 knots. The landing gear has to be down, wing flaps at 15 degrees, the cabin to remain unpressurized. Due to the fact that Mexico City wasn't out of the range of the craft, they agreed for a refueling in Reno, Nevada. The ban also included one particular detail in his demands. That model of plane, the Boeing 727-100, had an aft staircase that could be lowered from the back of the cabin to the ground during flight. The man was well aware of this and specified that it should remain open throughout the flight. The pilots objected on safety grounds, and although the man ensured them that it would be safe, they wouldn't budge and he's not too fussed, so they don't go through with that one. When the plane takes off, it has a handful of people on board. The man, the pilot and co-pilot, and a couple of others. This time it's being tailed by two fighter jets, one above, one below, both out of line of sight of the plane. After takeoff, the man instructs everyone into the cockpit and closes the door. Mucklow, still on board, sees him tying something around his waist, but nothing more than that. At 8pm, the light comes on in the cockpit. The aft staircase has been manually deployed. Over the intercom, the crew offer assistance to the man, but he shuts them down quickly and curtly. Then, a subjective change in the air pressure. He's opened the staircase. Surely he's not going to do what they think he's going to do. At a quarter past, the plane feels a bump on the rear end, enough to require correcting, but nothing more after that. Two hours later, when the plane lands in Reno, the staircase is still deployed. FBI, state troopers, local police, and airport officials storm the plane with caution. The guy did have a bomb, but he's nowhere to be found. So let me break down for you what happened there. This man buys a plane ticket and hijacks a plane. He's got a bomb and a very specific plan. He already knows about the aft staircase and is very picky when it comes to parachutes. He knows the plane won't make it to Mexico, but he doesn't need it to. He jumped out of a commercial airliner at night, in the rain, from an altitude over 10,000 feet, going over 100 knots, wearing nothing but a business suit. And try as they might, they never found him. When it was realized he jumped, the authorities quickly mapped the area that he could conceivably have landed in, but no dice. After an extensive search, nothing turned up. Sometimes in life we find ourselves rooting for the criminal. Bank heists, train robberies, old-timey pirates. We love someone who's willing to go the extra mile for their ends, even if those are evil ends, and we end up saying, mm, fair play to you. This might be the Ur example of that. The man purchased the ticket under an alias, or at least we assume so, but because a local Oregon man with a criminal record was initially suspected, and then immediately exonerated, a local reporter wrote the name wrong in the papers, and now we know the mystery hijacker by his erstwhile nom de guerre, D.B. Cooper.
today we're looking at one of the greatest unsolved heists of all time, the story of D.B. Cooper. Now, quick aside for all of you narrative nerds out there, the protagonist doesn't have to be a good guy. I'd call it a stretch to consider D.B. Cooper a good guy. Sure, he was nice and suave and kind to his hostages, but the man did threaten to kill them all if he wasn't paid $200,000. One way or the other, though, he is our protagonist, whether or not you think he's a good guy or a bad guy. Now, I've already mostly outlined the timeline of the actual hijacking in the introduction. I didn't add much narrative embellishment this time because I didn't need to. That story is wild enough already, and it's basically all true what I just said. So that's the long and the short of it. On Thanksgiving 1971, a man under the alias of Dan Cooper, later misprinted as D.B. Cooper, after a local ex-con was falsely accused of the crime, purchased plane tickets from Portland to Seattle on a Boeing 727-100. Shortly after takeoff, he calls Schaefer, the flight attendant, over and shows her his bomb and relays his demands to her and then to the pilots. They eventually land in Seattle where he collects his ransom and instructs the pilots to fly to Mexico City via Reno, Nevada, whilst flying in what we now realise was the best conditions he could have given himself for attempting to parachute out of the back of the plane. Sometime between 8pm and 10.15, Cooper jumps from the plane and is never seen or heard from again. So let's go right back to the beginning, to him buying the plane tickets. The prescient question is how much of this heist was planned and how much was improvised. What we do know for absolute certain is he was clearly planning to hijack the plane. He made his bomb ahead of time, and when they landed in Seattle, he had a decent idea of what he wanted to do next. Worth noting, by the way, that some have speculated he didn't even ever have a bomb at all. It was just tubes and wires hooked to a battery, which is entirely possible. After all, the only one who ever saw it was the flight attendant, and she's not going to risk the 41 passengers and crew on the flight over a bluff, given that she has no idea what a bomb looks like. So we might as well assume that it's real, or real enough, because whether or not D.B. Cooper knew how to make a bomb, it's unlikely he ever actually countenanced using it. After all, you can't spend ransom money if you're dead. The real question is the aft air stair, as it's called. Now, doing some digging, I found that this was actually fairly common knowledge in some circles, and the 727's air stair could be opened in mid-flight. In Vietnam, US Special Forces used military variants of the plane to drop operatives and supplies off mid-flight using the aft air stair. The US pulled out of Vietnam in 1972, and the Boeing 727 was introduced in 1963-64, so if Cooper had been one of the hundreds of thousands of Americans who'd served in Vietnam, or worked in the aviation industry, it's likely he would have known that you could open the stairs during the flight, thus facilitating his bonkers plan. So then, did he specifically buy the ticket because he knew the plane was a 727? If you say yes to the former, I think you say yes to the latter. Not 100%. He did need to be sure of his eventual drop site and flight path, or sure enough at least. We'll get to that in a minute. So he needed to be sure that the plane was going to be A, able to deploy him in mid-flight, and B, able to be redirected in, roughly, the right direction. What I mean to say by that is if he was aiming to land somewhere between Washington and Nevada and he'd hijacked the plane in Pennsylvania, you can see the problem. So I think it's equal parts picking the plane for the plane and picking the plane for the flight path. So, let's say old D.B. Cooper is savvy to the air stair. The next big question comes with the parachuting. Now, at the time, the weather was inclement, to say the least. It was nighttime in late November and a rainstorm. 
For any parachutist, parachuting from specifically designed planes in the daytime in the sun from a plane that is moving at a safe speed and altitude can still be a dangerous proposition. But Cooper has all of those working against him. Visibility is next to nothing. He's at least 10,000 feet in the air in the rain at night. He's going over 100 knots. He asks for it to be kept to 100, but he's going a lot faster than that, possibly even as fast as 150 knots with the headwind. Now, for a civilian, that's ludicrously fast. Most amateur skydivers tend to fly around 60 knots. Military jumpers dive at about 120 knots. So does this add the idea that he's ex-military? Moreover, your average amateur skydive height is around 14,000 feet, which gives you 60 seconds of freefall before you have to pull your chute cord. He was jumping from 10,000 feet, so even less time. On top of all of that, he eschewed the military-grade parachutes with the automatic deploy timers. He wanted a civilian parachute, which he would need to manually deploy, despite absolutely not being able to see the ground and therefore unable to either read his altimeter or be able to tell visually how high up he was. The outfit is the kicker, though. He's wearing a black business suit, loafers, and sunglasses. The average temperature at that altitude on a good day might be one degree Celsius. But in November, at night, in the rain, you're looking at closer to negative 10. And it's not just the cold. When you skydive, you typically wear shoes that can lace up snugly. Ideally, jump boots, but in a pinch, even trainers, so that you don't break your ankles when you hit the ground. Because even though you're wearing a parachute, it's still a force and it still hurts. He was wearing loafers, aka slip-on shoes. And between the speed of the plane, which as I mentioned was closer to 150 knots than 100, and the heavy wind, he would have had a 127 mile an hour wind in his face when jumping, which on a good day would massively skew your landing site. What I mean to impress upon you, listener, is that this jump would be extremely difficult for a master skydiver. For an amateur, it's all but suicide. So, either D.B. Cooper is a master skydiver and is willing to risk the odds, or he has no idea what he's getting himself into. There is also a final nail in the coffin for the ill-fated skydive. The reserve parachute he took with him, of the two of the reserves he was given, was one which was a training chute, as in it was sewn shut. The ripcord did nothing. A dummy chute, meant for training purposes. He did cannibalise one of the other working chutes, possibly to secure the money on his person, the tying at the waist that Mucklow saw, but despite it being demarcated as non-functioning, it appears for all the world that Cooper decided to jump with a backup chute that wouldn't work. To specify, by the way, this was his reserve chute. The primary chute was also an illogical choice. Instead of the new sporting steerable parachute, he took an older unsteerable model. But the reserve chute was a dummy chute. The FBI maintained the inclusion of the dummy chute was accidental, and I'm inclined to believe it. For starters, if he's got other chutes, why would he choose the one that doesn't work? It was at least clearly marked as such, to the eye of experienced jumpers, people who know what they're looking for, and he had a selection of shoots. It's not like all of them were non-functioning. And that brings us to, why take the one that doesn't work? It really torpedoes the idea that he was an experienced skydiver, because if he was, he would never have taken the dummy chute. Even if he had landed alive, he would have needed to survive in the mountains and forests of the Pacific Northwest in the onset of winter, which, even if he was uninjured after a suicidally dangerous jump, would have necessitated an accomplice to meet at a predetermined point. This in turn would absolutely require the crew's cooperation for helping him land the jump. 
Given that, it's no wonder that almost from the very beginning, the FBI were working off the idea that Cooper never survived the jump. Now that that's covered, we can come to his jump destination. Where did he plan to go? The plane experienced the bump around 8.13pm, and that bump was almost certainly Cooper jumping. That's because his body weight combined with the parachutes would have depressed the air stair, and when he jumps it flicks back up, causing the plane to jerk. Experiments done have confirmed this likelihood. So around that time he would have been somewhere just north of the border of Washington and Oregon, south of Mount St. Helens. That country is wild, lots of untamed forests and woodland. Not exactly a rainforest, but if a tree falls there, there may yet be nobody to hear it. I don't think he wanted to go to Mexico. I think he just wanted to draw a big old line on the map and jump out somewhere that they wouldn't find him, hence the night jump, so it would be harder to follow him. If he just wanted to go to Mexico, he could have asked for that and not bothered with the parachutes. In terms of motivation, I think it's pretty obvious. $200,000 then would be roughly over $1 million, about $1.2 million today. More money than most people see in their entire lives. And he didn't kill anyone doing it. He wouldn't have needed to live with any real guilt on his conscience, just the money taken from the aviation company's insurance fund. If he does get away across the border, he gets to live the rest of his life in peace and comfort, spending away that money as he needs to. This differs from the stereotype of mid-20th century hijackings, most of which would be the somewhere or rather liberation front with a political agenda, a total mess for the authorities to deal with. I think this is also one of the reasons why they were happy enough to comply with him. They knew he would keep his word because there's no advantage for him not to. He gets the cash, the hostages walk free. If he needs to detonate his bomb, he doesn't become a martyr for anything. Now, in terms of the investigation afterwards, it was basically a two-pronged approach. Find where he landed and track the money. The bills were unmarked, but they all had been photographed with a microfilm camera beforehand and were all from the same serial batch. Therefore, if you find the trail, you just need to find one bill from the batch, compare it to the photos, and if it lines up, you've picked them up. With regards to the landing site, nothing was ever turned up conclusively. Despite doing several reconstructions and the National Guard being mobilized in a sweep search, by the end of 1972, no physical evidence relating to the crime had been uncovered. In fact, to this day, nothing seriously conclusive pertaining to D.B. Cooper or his personal effects has ever been located. The money is a little different. In February of 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar, nine miles downstream of Vancouver, Washington, 20 miles southwest of Ariel, Washington. He uncovered three packets of ransom cash as he raked the Sandy River Bank building a campfire. The bills were very disintegrated, still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom given to D.B. Cooper two packets of $120 bills, and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when they were given to Cooper. This, and a placard from the plane, instructions on how to open the aft stairwell, which was found in the Washington forest, are the only physical evidence confirmed to be from the hijacking. None of the other money has ever been found anywhere in the world. One piece of physical evidence from inside the plane was Cooper's tie, which was left on board. Examination revealed no conclusive DNA evidence, but it did reveal something interesting. Chemicals, found in the manufacture of Boeing's supersonic transport developments, rare earth metal particles like cerium and strontium sulfide, which suggests that Cooper might have been a Boeing employee, which would explain why he knew about the aft staircase. He may also have been a factory manager. Titanium was found on his tie, rarer those days than nowadays, and in the titanium foundries, only employees with ties would be engineers or managers. 
Whilst new evidence has turned up more and more recently, the Thai evidence being finalised in 2017, the FBI officially suspended active investigation of the Cooper case in 2016. They are still accepting evidence submissions for testable physical evidence relating to Cooper or the missing ransom money. Now let's take a look at the suspects. The list is exhaustive. The FBI had, between 1971 and 2016, over 1,000 serious suspects in the case, so we're going to have to narrow it down to only the most likely. Ones that were frontrunners but have since been thoroughly debunked won't cut the mustard. Firstly, we have the composite image, which was all agreed by eyewitnesses to be very accurate. 5 foot 10 inches to 5 foot 11, 170 to 180 pounds, mid-40s, close-set piercing brown eyes and white with swarthy skin. In terms of a profile, the FBI was able to build a very specific one. First off, he's either a local or knowledgeable of the Pacific Northwest. He was able to identify landmarks from the air. He wasn't a skilled parachutist. We'll get to that in a minute. He was likely in a desperate financial situation. With a plan like that, there's no take two. You either do or die, so to speak. It was suggested that he took the name Dan Cooper from a Franco-Belgian comic book character about a Canadian Air Force pilot who was a flying ace and in one comic had parachuted. These books were never sold in the US or translated into English, so he might have either toured Europe with the military or privately, or been from there. This lines up with his demand for negotiable American currency, a very strange turn of phrase for saying money or legal tender. However, since he was described as not having a distinct accent, this may actually indicate that he was from Canada. The Dan Cooper books were sold in Canada, and if he spoke unaccented American English, that might be a clue that he was from somewhere like Quebec, having a good grasp of North American English, but not quite perfect with the grammar and the syntax. He was also at least somewhat competent and clever, as well as knowledgeable about his situation. He demanded four parachutes, two primary, two reserve, in order to create the impression that he'd take a hostage with him and thus prevent the FBI from deliberately sabotaging the gear. He chose the 727-100 not only because of the aft air stair, which could be lowered during flight, but also because the engine placement meant that he could jump and not get hit by the exhaust of the plane. The 727-100 was also a technological marvel at the time. It could refuel very quickly and fly at low air speeds without stalling unusual for commercial planes. Not only did Cooper know this, he knew the correct angles to keep the flaps at and the correct altitudes and speeds to fly at. Moreover, the knowledge that the air stair could be deployed mid-flight was nearly classified. Civilian flight crews weren't told that it could be done, and that the cockpit couldn't override the manual control because there was no need to tell them. In essence, the only people that really knew were either Vietnam-era CIA operatives or Boeing engineers. He didn't need the flight crew to open the air stair for him, he did it himself, so he absolutely did know. Cooper had learned from the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. He wore sunglasses to conceal his identity, he retrieved the ransom note after he delivered it to prevent handwriting analysis, and he asked for non-sequential bills, although by that time almost everybody in the US knew from pop culture that non-sequential didn't mean anything, you'd need to fence the bills or launder them to turn a profit. Some experts attest that Cooper could have survived his jump, some World War II bailouts had had worse odds than survivors, so therefore he could have dumped the money, knowing he couldn't have spent it. So how did it end up in the Tina Bar, miles from any seriously considered landing zone for him? The fact remains, though, despite some believing that he was military trained, he almost certainly was an amateur parachutist at best. I'm going to hammer it home again. 
a Boeing 727 at 15 degree flaps would have been going about 150 knots, faster than the average military jump. The windchill would have brought temperatures to below negative 10 and he was jumping into the rain at night in a suit and loafers with no helmet and a dummy reserve chute. He also did have a trench coat for what good that'll do. Whilst the jump itself may not have killed him, it's just far too many rookie errors for a man who, up until that point, had been so calm and collected. He was clearly prepared for everything up until the jump. So if he was ex-CIA or military, it stands to reason he wouldn't bottle it when it came to something as simple as asking for jump boots or checking the parachutes to see if you've got the right ones. Now we have our profile. Likely American, maybe Canadian or European, certainly an amateur skydiver. Very knowledgeable about the geography of the Pacific Northwest and the engineering specifics of a Boeing 727-100 to an almost absurd degree, and almost definitely motivated by money troubles. Our first candidate is Richard Floyd McCoy. McCoy is interesting right off the bat because in 72 he was arrested for a copycat Cooper hijacking. Stick with me though because the detail is pretty intense. Firstly, same model of plane, same demand for four parachutes. Same phrasing of the note explaining about the threat, including the same phrase, no funny stuff. Same calm demeanor, same basic game plan. He'd served with the Green Berets in Vietnam for two tours and was a skydiver at home in Utah. Now, he didn't have a bomb for this hijack, and unlike Cooper, he was sloppier. He left the note behind, he left far more fingerprints at the scene, and he was captured. He escaped two years later, but was killed three months after that in a shootout with law enforcement. The FBI doesn't consider him a prime suspect, mainly because he was actually too good of a skydiver to have been Cooper. He chose to jump during the day and in good weather, and his otherwise experience fed the profile or exceeded the profile. On top of that, he actually had an alibi. He was in Las Vegas and then at home in Utah for Thanksgiving on the day of the Portland hijacking. Then there's Dwayne L. Weber. He was a World War II veteran who'd served time in at least six prisons from 1945 to 1968 for burglary and forgery. He was proposed as a suspect by his widow, stating, with a deathbed confession, three days before he died in 1995, he told his wife, I am Dan Cooper. Which meant nothing to her, she said. But a couple of months later, a friend of hers told her its significance. She went to a local library to research D.B. Cooper, found a book by a man called Max Gunther, an authority on the subject, and discovered in the margins notations in her husband's handwriting. She then recalled in retrospect that Weber once had a nightmare in which he talked in his sleep about jumping out of a plane and leaving fingerprints on the aft stairs. He also reportedly told her that an old knee injury had been incurred jumping out of a plane, but had said no more. Like the hijacker, Weber liked to drink bourbon and chain-smoked. Other circumstantial evidence included a 1979 trip to Seattle and the Columbia River, during which Weber took a walk alone along the river bank in the Tina Bar area. Four months later, Brian Ingram finds the ransom cash in that very place. The FBI eliminated him as an active suspect in July 1998 when his fingerprints didn't match any of those processed in the hijacked plane and no other direct evidence could be found to implicate him. Walter R. Raker, born Walter R. Paker, was a Michigan native, a military veteran and original member of the Michigan Parachute Team. He was proposed as a suspect by his friend Carl Lauren, a former commercial airline pilot and expert parachuter himself. In 2008, Raker confessed to being D.B. Cooper to Lauren via a recorded phone call. In 2018, Principia Media released a four-part documentary detailing the investigation. 
Reiki gave Lauren permission in a notarized letter to share his story after he died in 2014, aged 80. He also allowed Lauren to tape their phone conversations about the crime over a six-week period in late 2008. In over three hours of recordings, Reiki gave new details about the hijacking that a lot of people in the public hadn't heard before. The evidence Lauren found came from an eyewitness of someone who had seen someone later identified as Raker on the night of the hijacking, walking through the backwards of Clay Aiken, Washington, quote, looking like a drowned rat. After getting him some coffee, the witness, one Jeff Ogiak, and the man parted ways. What's interesting about the story is the identity of Raker was confirmed by Ogiak. He described the man from memory, having never met Lauren, and Lauren confirmed that the man was Raker. What remains is to decide whether the man that Ogiak met that stormy night was D.B. Cooper. In 2016, Lauren took the information to publishers Principia Media, who consulted Joe Koenig, a forensic linguist. He evaluated all of the documents they had, including passports, ID cards, photographs, and newspaper clippings. Koenig found no evidence of tampering or manipulation and deemed all documentation authentic or contemporaneous. After comparing Lauren's research to the available FBI records, he found no discrepancies that would have eliminated Raker as a suspect. He also thought it particularly significant that Ogiak's statement of events on the night of November 24, 1971, were identical to the account that Raker made five years earlier about the man that he'd met, thus enabling Lauren to find him. Koenig publicly stated at the Principia Media press conference in 2018 that he believes that Walter R. Raker was D.B. Cooper. In November 2018, the Oregonian published an article that identified William J. Smith of Bloomfield, New Jersey, as a possible suspect. The article was based on research from a U.S. Army data analyst who sent his findings to the FBI in 2018. Smith, a native of New Jersey, was a World War II Navy veteran who would have been about 43 at the time of hijacking, thus fitting the age profile for D.B. Cooper, who was supposed to have been in his mid-40s. After high school, he enlisted in the Navy and volunteered for combat aircrew training, citing a desire to fly. After graduation, he worked for the Lahig Valley Railroad Company, which was impacted by the Penn Central Transportation Company bankruptcy of 1970, the largest company bankruptcy in the U.S. history up until that time. The article theorized that this loss of pension created a grudge against the corporate establishment and transportation industry. It also created a sudden need for money due to the loss of the pension. In Smith's high school yearbook, a list of alumni killed in World War II, in which Smith served, lists one Ira Daniel Cooper, possibly the source of the hijacker's given name of Dan Cooper. The Oregonian article states that particles such as aluminium spiral chips found on the tie could have come from a locomotive maintenance factory, like the one that Smith worked at. Furthermore, it states that Smith's information about the Seattle area might have come from his friend, railroad worker Dan Clare, who was stationed at Fort Lewis in Washington during World War II. The FBI responded to media requests on Smith by saying that it would be, quote, inappropriate to comment about specific suspects. This indicates to me that they haven't ruled him out entirely. There are plenty of other suspects that I haven't covered, so I encourage you to do your own reading and see if any others jump out at you. But in the next section, you'll see why I haven't covered more suspects. So, who do I think was D.B. Cooper? None of them. Really? Well, maybe the last one, Smith. But the fact is, a lot of these suspects just don't match the profiling. They're all ex-military parachutists, which was the initial suspicion of the FBI. 
but they're experienced parachutists. None of them were nearly desperate enough within their own personal situations to attempt what they must have known would be a suicidally dangerous jump. Not for all the tea in China would you get me to do that, and I know about the conditions. I think anyone who was D.B. Cooper would need to match the profile of knowing about the plane in intimate detail, but not necessarily being able to match that knowledge to real-world application in the form of jump experience. Hence the theory that I prefer that Cooper was a Boeing engineer. He'd have known about the usage of the aft stairs, he may have even heard about its use in Vietnam due to having been an engineer on the planes, he'd matched the materials found on his tie to the place of his work, and he wouldn't be an experienced parachutist. Which makes the most sense to me when you think about it. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect, when you know just enough about something to wildly overestimate your ability. Like how an amateur football player will act like they're a god at football, they're just good enough to think that they're great. He knows to set the flaps to 15 degrees for the optimum flight conditions. He knows how to manually lower the aft stairwell and that this can be done as an override during flight. But he doesn't know that jumping into the rain at night in 200 mile an hour winds at minus 10 below into a heavily wooded area that you can't see for the cloud cover with one dummy chute and wearing nothing but a trench coat and loafers is impossibly dangerous. So I don't think it was any of those suspects. I think he's yet to be found. An unknown somebody, possibly from Canada originally, hence the Dan Cooper alias, maybe not, who was an employee at either Boeing or another aerospace manufacturer. Boeing's most likely since that gives him the intimate working knowledge of the 727-100's internal workings, knowledge that was apparently reserved for engineers who built it and CIA paramilitaries who used the function. As I said before, civilian air crews weren't trained to operate the aft stairs during flight because, other than this one of very specific usage, why would you ever need to? As to whether Cooper survived the jump, I'm sceptical. I admire his moxie. I really do. I think if there's anything to look up to about Cooper, it's that he had serious follow-through. But looking at the situation on the ground, I don't see any way he could have made it. You're jumping out of a plane at night, in the rain, into heavy wind. Stop right there. That by itself will blow you way off of your ideal landing zone course. And given that Cooper picked the non-steerable parachute, that's even worse odds. Then there's cloud cover, so you can't see what's trees and what's a clearing that would be safe to land in. If by some miracle you didn't impale yourself on a Scots pine or snag your chute up in a redwood like a World War II paratrooper, then you're potentially hundreds of miles from your ideal drop site far away from your accomplice that you need, and winter is fast approaching in Washington State's mountains and forests. In a sodden trench coat and loafers, you probably wouldn't even make the night, let alone manage to escape back to civilization, or without being detected or arrested. So I think two things. One, he might have dumped the money during his descent and crash-landed and died, or he kept the money on him and crashed into a river. His body gets carried out to sea by the current and thus lost, and the cash winds up on the Tina Bar. Now, this is unsubstantiated, I'm just connecting the dots to explain why they never found his body if he did indeed perish in the skydive. It might have also just been, you know, absorbed by nature, in the wilderness like that, dragged away by a wolf or something. It doesn't explain everything. Why was he so calm and collected? How was he such a consummate professional hijacker? Why did he talk so strangely? Why did he hijack the plane in the first place? If it was for money, why did he need that much? Why take the risk? Did he even know he was taking a risk? If he was no good as a jumper, he might not have even realized he was in danger. And if he survived, where did he go? 
The stacks of bills were found strangely. Some money was missing from one pile, but not lots of it, and none of the other money ever turned up. Spent. The FBI have been looking globally for it. Matter of fact, the case file on Norjack, as it's called, is 40 feet tall when stacked up. 40 feet of case files. Is there a lesson from this story? I guess it would be the confidence will take you 99% of the way, but don't talk the talk if you can't walk the walk. Cooper was a man with an almost unsurpassed moxie, chutzpah, spunk, gusto, panache, other such synonyms. One of the more prominent Cooper investigators, FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach, actually hated that Cooper became such an admired folk hero, calling him a rotten, sleazy crook. And I hate to throw wood onto that fire, but how can you not be kind of impressed? Until you realise the futility of his plan. He's like the gambler who sits at the table and coolly says, I'm going to bet it all on red 36 at the roulette, and wins round after round after round. But you can see the dealer is smiling and you know what's about to happen. The man doesn't realise it, but his insane luck and force of willpower won't last forever. So, literally and figuratively, look before you leap. Don't assume that just because you've made it this far in something that things will just turn out magically. Check your backup parachutes. There were lessons learnt in the aviation industry. Cooper's hijacking marked the end of the era of unrestricted air travel. The days where you'd just casually smoke on an aeroplane or could walk up to an airport desk and pay in cash for an airline ticket that day are gone. Due to this and the numerous copycat crimes, air marshals became more common and increased powers to search luggage to check for briefcase bombs was more and more ubiquitous. Cooper wasn't himself a terrorist, but the US government realised how easily he could have been. For his legacy, the Cooper vane is now a lever which prevents Boeing 727 ventral doors being opened mid-flight. They realised that really nobody needs to be able to open it during the flight and decided to just take care of that little problem. On top of that, Cooper's hijacking was one of the first that seriously prompted the installation of peepholes on cockpit doors, because the pilots had taken the stewardess's word for it that there was a bomb. Now, pilots can observe the cabin without needing to potentially compromise the safety of a cockpit. So, that's the story of D.B. Cooper. The man, the myth, the legend. Great hijacker, terrible skydiver. You've been listening to Demystified with Ashley Styles. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.